You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Um, let's see, how should we start this morning? Um, boy, it's been a, a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Nehemiah because last week we had, um, last week we had, Hills Alive Sunday, so we took a pause, and Nick and I got a chance to preach, uh, to, uh, uh, to, got a chance to team preach, which I love doing, and uh, we might do that a little bit more. Um, Nick mentioned, and just in brief passing, Nick mentioned that uh, in September there are some changes coming, and changes don't necessarily affect what happens here on Sunday mornings as much as uh, there's a, a new church service is one way to look at it, but we're looking at it like a church plant, a whole another church starting up in September on Friday evenings starting September 7th. A very different feel. We'd love to talk to some people about that if you're interested in being involved in that. Um, Please come talk to Nick or myself um, or Jake, but Jake's not here. He's off off, uh, camping with Mike Kersnack. Uh, so we'll pray one of the two comes back. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, anyway, so we. Uh, if, but if you want to talk to us about that, we'd love to give you information. It's some pretty interesting stuff that's kind of formulating already. This is a response to what God's already been doing. God's already pulling together a group of people that uh, that that want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so if you're interested in that, we'd love for you to get involved. Um, it's going to be a, a pretty. It'll be a pretty big day. Um, speaking of big days. Uh, we've had a lot of big days here. Uh, today is, what's the date today? I don't even remember. Uh, today is July 29th, 2018. Woof. Welcome, as my, as one of my, uh, my high school teachers used to say, welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. Um, but today actually marks, um, and, well, and not necessarily today, but on August 1st um, marks six years of my wife and I being here. Yeah, no, you don't have to clap for that. That's like, you should be like, six years. Six years flies by. Six years flies by. Oh, stop that. That's not the time yet. That's fine. Okay, six years flies by. But not as much as 18, because August also marks, August 12th marks 18 years that I've been married to this beautiful lady. And this was a big day in my life. Look at how young we are. Oh, man. We were babies, absolute babies. We got married 18 years ago on August 12th, okay? This was a huge day. This was a huge day. This was a day that I vowed, probably for the first time ever, to love somebody other than myself. Like those of you who are single, um, all the single ladies, right? Um, all the, and, uh, okay, you're selfish. That's all there is to it. I'm sorry, but there's something that married people know is that when you get married, guess what? You have to live with somebody else. And they are not necessarily the most amazing person to live with sometimes, right? Like, uh, you, you start off with this beautiful, like, look at how happy we are in this particular photo. Or like, you know, everybody's happy. And then like two days later, you realize that one of you is a mouth breather and the other one's an open mouth chewer. And you don't quite know how to figure this out, right? So there's a big day where you vow, you stand in your fancy clothes in front of everybody and you promise to love somebody other than yourself and it's a major shift. And at, at this moment, right, on this day, I thought, oh man, this is going to be amazing. And then a couple days later you realize, oh wait, this is going to be hard work. 
It's amazing work, right? We wouldn't be sticking with it 18 years later if it wasn't amazing work. It is awesome work, but it is tough work. But this was the first day, I think, in my life that I realized that I had to love somebody other than myself. But this isn't the last of those days. Here's another one. No, I'm not posing. I'm actually watching television. My wife snipered a shot at me. So that was the day or a couple days after we brought home baby winter. Aww, yeah. And uh, this is a day that changes your life. The first time I saw winter, the first time I saw winter was actually even more powerful than that day I stood up in my fancy clothes and I said before everybody that I was going to love somebody more than myself. Because this was the first time that I could not help but feel the protection and the, and the love and the self-sacrifice that is inherent to your being come rushing out of you. I saw her and like cried. Instantaneously. Now that wasn't my, I mean, back in the, back in the day I was pretty emotional, so I'd cry all the time, so it didn't say much, but this was, uh, this was a big day, right? So, and I remember the day, I'll tell you the story real quick, I remember the day we, um, I was sleeping, right, and all of a sudden I get this elbow in my, in my rib from that person that I showed the pictures of just earlier, and she's like, it's time. I'm like, really? And I jump up and I'm panicking and I'm grabbing all the stuff just like you see, and she's like, whoa, 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 just calm down. It's fine. We're going to go in. Because we actually were scheduled to be induced anyways. It was a scheduled thing, but I was just panicking, right? So <laughs> we, got, we got to the car, and we're walking out of the car, and I remember seeing the sky in Green Bay, Wisconsin, the most beautiful green, copper, beautiful sky I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, because I never, I usually didn't get up for sunrises, but hey, we had to get up pretty early. So um, that's, that's actually a lie. I was working... Um, and saw sunrises quite often, but didn't see one this beautiful. And so I saw this beautiful sunrise. I praised God and thanked Him for this beautiful day. And then this uh, beautiful little girl arrived and like tears streaming down my face. And then what happens? You get them home two days later and they smell. (laughs) And they're up all night. And they don't eat, and they don't sleep, and they always want something. And it's like all those emotions of like, oh, yes, this was the best thing ever. Thank you, Jesus. We're like, were you really, do you really know what you're doing here, God? Because uh, I don't think so. But then it happened again. There we go. Oh. That's us taking. <laughs> that would be created right there. It'd be created right there. He looks like, uh, I don't know, he looks like a stuffed animal or a cabbage patch kid. He looks like a cabbage patch kid, right? Yeah. So uh, this was the second day where I got this chance to, and this was my boy, my like, oh man, I'm going to turn this kid into a man. And I was like, yeah, I mean, this was a, another one of those moments where you're like, okay, not only do I have this beautiful girl to protect, but now I have this man to, to try to turn into a man. And what the heck does it even mean to be a man? It certainly isn't when you're 18 or 28 or 38 necessarily or 65 like Doug is today. By the way, it's Doug's birthday today, everybody. Yeah, we can interrupt this for just a second. Um, I want you to sing happy birthday to him as fast as humanly possible. Uh, so here we go. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, Doug. Happy birthday to you. Okay, good. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> 
But just because you're 65, just because you're 40, just because you're 18, just because you're 28 doesn't make you a man. Something else. And so I had to wrestle with this going, how do I make this kid a man? How do I turn this kid into a man? And I told him to get a job three days after we took him home. (laughs) You save it for later. It's fine. Remember your prayer request. No arguing with Creedon. Okay. But then we had, uh, then after this, um, we had, oh, that. (laughs) This would be Jonas. He was, yeah, he's so cute. He was born in Minnesota, so he's our only Vikings fan. And, uh, yeah. Um, But, you know, some things happened in between Creedon and Jonas where we lost a couple of children. And some difficult days were there. And those were days where I realized that not only do I have a purpose as a father, but like to have a child is not something to be taken for granted. And it is something that is powerful. And so Jonas was named Jonas, Greek for Jonah, the Hebrew Jonah. Uh, His middle name is Meyer, and he's the proclaiming teacher. That's what his name means. And he came to teach us all kinds of things, and boy, did he teach us about tax deductions, right? (laughs) Um, And Jonas was my little buddy. Um, We stayed up all night for the first, I don't know, two years while I was working a pastor job. So that was fun. These three days, four days, these four days are among some of the biggest days in my life. They are days that I made a vow before God to do something that was, um, I think, often beyond me. There are things that when you have that that well-up moment where all of a sudden you're standing and you're going, I promise to love this person till death do us part. I promise to love this person with everything I got. I promise to love this person in better or in worse, no matter what. And then when those little children come out and you say, I promise to protect this person at all costs to myself. And to them, when, when you promise those things, right, these big vows are big, huge things. They're big, huge things. But the reality of playing those vows out is something that I do not think I am perfect at. In fact, I think I screwed up multiple times a day. And so what happens is sometimes we can vow these things, but these vows that we have oftentimes do not match up with reality, and we have to be very careful how we vow. Today we're going to walk through Nehemiah, and you're going to run into, we are going to run into a point where the people of Israel stand up in their fancy clothes and make a vow before God. They make a vow before God. They have all the emotions, they have all the heart, they have everything. But the vow and the practical application, the walking out of that vow, I do not know if it is there. And I'll show you a few things that um, I'll show you a few things that I've, I think I've found in here that indicate um, some difficulty ahead. So I tell you what, um, let's open the book of Nehemiah. We've been walking through the book of Nehemiah for now 10 weeks. Okay, we're on the 10th chapter. That's kind of how we do this whole thing. Uh, we got a few more weeks to go. And these next couple of weeks, if you're reading along with Nehemiah, you know that they can be a little bit on the dry and boring side until chapter 13, which is a pretty amazing chapter. And Nick's going to preach that in a few weeks. It's where basically Nehemiah loses his stuff and he just comes unglued and beats the snot out of everybody. It's great. 
Um, but Nehemiah, in this particular moment, what has happened is they've built the wall. They've um, they, they've they've done what they've needed to. They've done what he he's he's done what he's been called to do, and he's coming to the end of everything. Um, speaking of the end of everything, and and where we've come to, we got to do our timeline, right? So if you have your little bulletin thingy on the side, the right hand side of that little handout, there are all these icons, and this is my attempt to get you to remember the great storyline of Scripture. We need to know this storyline because it helps us make sense of what's going on in the context that we're reading, right? So the very first thing we see in Scripture is God starts off with creation. And you do jazz hands like this for creation. We have hand motions because it's summer and vacation Bible school and all that stuff. So creation. But creation falls. Creation ends up falling. So you've got creation and fall. Okay, So God creates, but creation falls into complete and total disarray. Now, God doesn't stop. His story doesn't stop there because what he does now is he calls Abraham and tells him he's going to make him one of many nations. And so the nations are like stars, right? Stars in the sky. So you got creation, fall, nations. But then the nations get sent into... Ca- no, it's not sent into captivity. Man, I messed up. Okay, so yeah, nations. Yeah, it is. Then they get sent into captivity in order to actually protect them and incubate them. Okay, they grow as a nation in captivity. It's a beautiful thing. They grow as a nation in captivity, but then God sends them out. He takes the Jamin approach and gives them the exodus, right? So he he exits them. He moves them out of there because they've grown, and now he's going to redeem them and draw them out, and he sends them out. But they don't just go out. They actually disobey, and they end up wandering around in the wilderness for a bunch of years, for 40 years, until a generation passes away. Then God brings them into the promise land, the one that he had promised them back when he was calling them in to be in a nation, but the promised lands. Okay, And then in the promised land, they have this sin issue where they keep falling into sin and God keeps saving them out of sin by sending them judges. Okay, So judges are like this. He sends them judges. Judges are not like our judges where they wear robes and uh, white wigs and all that stuff. Judges are saviors. They're little mini saviors. They are like superheroes, like Samson is one of the judges. He's not a great guy, definitely not a great guy. Please don't want to be like Samson. But God uses him to save the entire nation because he's a judge. But they get sick of this judge thing and depending on God to send saviors. And so they're like, we don't want judges, we want kings. And so he asks for a king, and God sends them the nation, God sends them kings. He sends them Saul and then sends them David and all of that stuff. And he warns them kings are not this is not going to go well, but they want it anyways. And so it doesn't go well for them. They obey the king, they disobey. Obeying God by following the kings, and he sends them into exile. He gets them out of here, sends them into exile. And then as they're exiled, they repent, their hearts turn back to him, and God brings them back just like he promised as they return. And that's where we find Nehemiah. Nehemiah is on the tail end of that return, building the wall of Jerusalem and protecting the temple and all that is in there. Okay, we got all of that. Now, they get to the point where they're done building the wall and they're getting ready to make an agreement, to make a vow before God. And so chapter 10, it says this. Um, We're going to start in verse 38 of chapter 9 and then I'm going to skip all the names because... I'll show you why. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were... Now, here's a helpful tip when you're saying the names... Just slide into a deep southern drawl. Check it out. 
Nehemiah, the governor and the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah. See, it really works pretty well. So if you're really struggling with the names, just slide right down on that southern accent and you're going to get it right there. Okay, you just got to kind of slide down a little bit. Right. Okay, so there's these names, and uh, and and we're just going to kind of skip through this list because honestly, this is an interesting thing because nobody really knows who these names are, and I wish we did, and I think someday we will. But this is a beautiful thing, like to have your name inscribed in a scripture, unless of course it's for making this promise that you're not going to keep, which is what happens. So all the way down to verse 28, the rest of the people. Oh wait, maybe I should back up to 26. Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Myluk, Hiram, and Baana. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. All these now join their brothers and nobles, excuse me, brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us, to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the law. We also assume the responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit and tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God to the priests ministering there. Moreover... See, now this is reading really great. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, to the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of all our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is, Aaron is to accept... <laughs> she said, hey, Aaron, I can't believe it. <laughs> Anyways, a priest descended from Aaron is to accept the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests and gatekeepers and singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's their promise. Now, thank you for reading that. Thank you for your patience with reading that. I know it reads a little bit like the Constitution. You know, it's kind of a little bit of a dry thing, but in it is some pretty amazing stuff. And what you're going to see in a couple of chapters is really messed up. Like, they systematically disobey this within a few years. Now, how did they get to that point where they systematically disobey this? I mean, is this really a promise that they're trying to keep? Is this really a vow? Is this something that's an important moment? Is this something that even is making a dent in their in their heart at all? Well, I'm going to point out a few things that I think uh, we actually fall into as a trap quite often as well. And we're just going to roll through this and and, uh, and and wrap this all up. I think the very first thing that they fall into is they actually start off by overestimating themselves. 
They start off by overestimating themselves. If you look into the passage here, they start off right at the beginning in, uh, where is it? Verse, uh, verse, uh, verse uh, 28, I think. Nope, 29. All these now join their brothers and nobles to bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Now, what they're doing here is they are stating, we are stepping into something, we're stepping into a promise, and we're going to do this, and if we don't do this, we expect a curse from you, God. We're we're stepping into something with an oath and with a curse. In this passage, the people start off by entering into this oath and curse, and they're starting by making one of those promises of, oh Lord, I promise to follow you, and so help me if I don't. You ever made one of those? How many days do you keep it? Well, Lord, I promise to I promise to do that. I will do this. I will give you my life every Sunday and take it back every Sunday afternoon, right? They are entering into a contractual agreement with God. Now, the Old Testament is full of these types of contracts. The Old Testament is full of stories. Also, unfortunately, of the breaking of those contracts. That is what makes up the entirety of the Old Testament. People entering into contracts with God and them breaking it. Over and over and over and over and over again. And the whole truth and the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of Jesus is that God comes to make the contract and to keep it. And you get to be the beneficiary of the contract. He comes to send Jesus to say, you know what, I'm going to pay the debt of this contract before I even make it. That's what the cross is. Sends Jesus and he says, "You know what? You're going to die on a, you're going to die on a cross. You're going to be resurrected to new life. And what's going to happen is not only am I going to keep, I'm going to take the punishment of all the people who are going to break that contract, but I'm also going to keep the contract all in the same action. That's what the cross is. It's a beautiful thing." And stands completely starkly different from everything else in the Old Testament where you're looking at this and they're entering into promises and entering into contracts and making vows and a day later breaking them. See, contracts tend to prophetically outline the litigation that is to come. The particular contract, this particular contract, is uh, is doubly difficult to look at. See, what happens is throughout the Old Testament, when the people of God were presented with the Word of God, presenting the laws and the statutes and the the things that God decreed for a pe- for His people group, for His people that He called to be a nation, one of the very first laws that they are to keep is called the Great Shema. This is little little Hebrew Hebraic stuff for you. The Great Shema, Deuteronomy six five. And Hebrews would often say it with their pinky out, but we're not going to do that. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the preamble to the rest of all of the law that God has decreed. And the very first thing is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And there is not a single reference, not a single mention, not a single thing about their heart for God. Not a single thing about their heart for God. In fact, it's all about obeying rules. 
the people do not include their love for God as their basis of this promise. And so this promise is doubly doomed to fail. Even their love for God will wane. But at least you would step on the right platform, step on the right foundation of a love for God. So right off the bat, they're overestimating their ability to keep this contract and completely underestimating the grace and the love of God. They're completely overestimating their ability to keep this contract and completely underestimating the love and the grace of God. But it doesn't stop there because there's another thing I need to show you. And this is in verse 32 and in verse 35, although theoretically in the translation in the Hebrew it's not in verse 35, it's supplied again by the, uh, by the translators in order to keep some continuity. But this is the biggest thing here. Okay, This is one of the biggest things. In verse 32 it starts off with, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third. And then there's this list of their givings, their tithes, their offerings, and their ability to maintain the temple. Now, in some of your other translations, English Standard Version, New American Standard, some of your other translations, they would use the word, we now obligate ourselves to do these things. We obligate ourselves to do these things. Uh, The Hebrew word is the word misvat, which is where we would actually get mitzvah from, like uh, your bat mitzvah or whatever. And what it is, is the mitzvah is a, a taking on of adulthood. The bar mitzvah is a bar mitzvah. It's a taking on of adulthood, a taking on the mantle, the pressure of adulthood. That's what that ceremony is. And these guys use that for that word, that, that, that verb, mitzvah. So this, this, the idea is we are going to take on as a burden, the burden of giving, to the temple, and taking care of the temple. They actually write it into their contract that this is going to be a burden for them, an obligation, something that is weighty, something that is heavy, something that is a load. Which turns out, their promise is a load. Because what you end up finding out is, and you read like the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi is replete with this idea of, you have found, you are, you are, you are looking at my house, you are looking at worship of me, you are looking at this temple worship like it's a burden, like it's heaviness, like it's weary, like it's burdensome. And they flat out promise that that's what they're gonna do. We are going to burden ourselves with giving of tithes and offerings, and we are going to burden ourselves with making sure that we take care of the house of the Lord. See, the law of God commands people. It lays a mantle on them. But it also provides a way to absolve from the breaking of that particular mantle. In this contract, the people obligate themselves. They weigh themselves down with the heaviness of the law of God. The problem is that we are not built to carry that heaviness. This is why Jesus steps on the scene and he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because you are not built to carry the weight of God's word. You're not built to carry the pressure of the obedience. Jesus was the only one who could carry that. That is why we need Him as a Savior. And our issue is we need to throw ourselves at the mercy seat, throw ourselves at God's feet and say, I can't keep this on my own. I need a Savior. And what they're keenly doing is that they're, they are keenly obligating themselves to this pressure. But they don't stop there. And Christina's already got it up. They also focus on the physical side of things. In fact, everything in here is all about them keeping the law so that they can protect the temple. 
so that they can protect the temple. With exception to the fact that they're talking about their family lives. But the rest of it is all about keeping the temple. And this burden that they're taking on is about taking care of running a physical building that is the house of God. And that's what every other nation is doing around Israel at this time. They're all building temples, gigantic temples to their their gigantic gods. And the, this, the people of Israel slide off into this idea going, we're just going to take care of this because this, if we take care of this, then it's going to ensure that our God stays around because all you have to do is build him a big enough house, make sure his house is beautiful enough, make sure it's got enough food and stuff in it. And once we take care of all of that, we're sure that our God will stay with us. But we find out in the book of Acts that God does not dwell in houses made by man. God does not dwell in houses made by man. See, the people's focus is on the physical location of the temple instead of the God who actually lives in the temple. They start focusing on the temple here, not on the God who is in the temple. And this subtle twist kills everything. And and the idea here is, and I don't know if you know this, but this still happens today. This still happens today. There are many churches that I've either been a part of or you've been a part of where we are spending most of our time and most of our energy and most of our money running a physical building. So much so that when somebody comes in and says, hey, God's telling us to go this way, we go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's going to take all of our time and energy and money away from mowing the lawn and keeping our pretty building. This still happens today. This still happens today. And this subtle twist, it kills everything. See, at the end of it all, here's the deal. Obligation. Obligation kills passion. Obligation kills passion. Obligation to rules kills passion. Legalism kills love. Duty kills desire. These things are the things that we are hardwired with. If you are obliged to have to do something, you may do it for a while. But it's going to become a burden to you and you're going to hate it. I'll use this uh, example just like, I mean, we'll talk about this like uh, at, at, in, a, in a marriage. Okay, I had showed you that picture, you know, eight, picture 18 years ago of me and my wife getting married. The times when I'm most frustrated with that relationship is the time where I have slid in my heart to think that I am obliged to have to be married. That I'm obliged to have to be married. As opposed to seeing that I am freed and I am, uh, I am bound to get to be married. Does that make sense? Same thing with my kids. Boy, my kids frustrate me a lot this week. Um, but it, the, no, just kidding. It wasn't too much. But the times that I get most frustrated are when they feel as though they are obligated, and I feel as though I am obligated to them. I want to be around them. They want to be around me. I want them to want to be around me, and I want them to want me to be around them. Yeah, I, call, I kept track of that. That's right. I want that desire to be there in their hearts. When I tell them to go do the garbage, I don't want them to be like, what a burden. Right? I want them to be like, okay, this is part of my, part of my, my relationship with my family and my house. We're doing chores together. We actually oftentimes uh, listen to good music and dance a little bit while we're doing it. It's fine. The obligation will kill your passion. Duty will kill desire. Legalism will kill love. More rules, less rules, better rules. None of that's going to work. Why? Because our hearts 
As soon as we see rules, what does it want to do? Get around them. What does it want to do? What does your heart want to do as soon as somebody lays a rule in front of you? It looks for a loophole. What is going to change your heart and what is going to change your life is not the right set of rules. It's not a well-stacked set of rules. It's not the best set of rules. It's not a really great set of rules. It's not a wonderful, perfectly polished set of rules. It's not following a person who actually obeyed the rules and then trying to obey the rules like them. That stuff, scripturally, is not going to change your life because humans are not built that way. We are not built that way. How we are built is right... Well, we were originally built that way, but as we fell into sin, as we fell into disrepair, something inside of our hearts always wants to get around every single rule that's put inside of us. And now we realize that we need something. So what do we need? What do you need as a human? Well, here's what you need. You need a new heart. You need a new heart with a new heartbeat. A new heart that's not going to go, Oh, rule! Ha ha ha! Sucker, I'm going to get around that. You need a new heart that's going to look at things like law or like command, and you're going to look at that and go, Okay, these commands have something to do with the heart and the nature of God, and as I follow these things, I will see God clearer. We need a heart that's going to do that. We don't just need a new heart with a new heartbeat. You also need a whole new soul. You need a whole new soul with a new capacity. The Holy Spirit, and and there's scripture to go with this, a new heart with a new heartbeat, right? Like this is God's promise. I will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh and I will write their word, write my word on their heart. That is God's promise to us. A new soul with a new capacity. Jesus says, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We need to have God's Spirit live inside of us. That is what a new soul with a new capacity does. All of a sudden you get a heartbeat that starts to beat for the nations and starts to beat for other people and starts to beat for salvation. We also need a new purpose and a new direction or a new purpose with a new direction. The Scripture says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. The idea is we were once dead, now God brings us into new life, and now we have a life that lives and moves and breathes, an eternal life. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what we need is we need a Savior. Because can you give yourself a new heart? Can you give yourself a new soul? Can you get into a great workout routine and a great diet plan that's going to really give you a great new soul? No. can't. Are you going to be able to build enough of a routine to give you a great heart? So much of a good routine that you rely wholeheartedly on that routine and your ability to keep it? We can't do that. Even when we do, we end up lost in pride going, yeah, I'm keeping my heart clean. That's me that's doing that. Can you give yourself a new purpose and a new direction? I've tried. I've tried. What we need is we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need one who has defeated death. We need one who's defeated death and who's beat sin and who's canceled the darkness in our heart and who's who's died and and given this holy and said, I'm going to go so I can give you the Spirit. One that that defeats death, one that beats our sin, and one that gives us life. We need that kind of Savior. Is there any Savior out there like that? Yeah. His name is Jesus. He died. 
beating death with death. He was buried and took the penalty for our sin. He rose again to grant eternal life and comes to give the Holy Spirit to us so that as the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, we have a new direction, new mission, new heart, new everything. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the promise that Jesus keeps. That is the promise that Jesus came to to proclaim. That is the promise that He came to proclaim, He came to keep, and He even came to take the penalty for the fact that you can't keep it. I failed to put up one other picture. I failed to put up one other picture. There's a, I was going to show you a picture of, uh, of this old church building over on West Main Street. It's a 16,000 square foot gigantic monstrosity of a building that leaked everywhere. It had a cracked up parking lot. Some of you might remember it. It's a place where this church used to actually dwell. We used to survive. used to... I don't know how you claim proclaim it, but it's a place that this church used to meet and worship at. When I got here six years ago, I walked into this gigantic building and sat down in this gigantic office with not enough books to even fill a bookshelf and like sat at this gigantic desk and went, Whew, now what? And there was nothing. There was nobody. There were crickets. And Judy was downstairs. And I'm pretty sure she was sleeping. I don't know. I don't know what you were doing there. She didn't, I think I was sleeping, actually. That's, yeah, because I think she came up a couple of times and had to kick me. But sit in this gigantic office in this gigantic empty building going, now what do we do? Where do we go? You think I could contrive of, like, I couldn't contrive of, like, packing up a group of people and moving them downtown and doing ministry to college students and now planting a church um, to uh, to some bunch of weird kind of people that are gathering together. I mean, I, I, there's no way we could contrive these things. Why? Because what I would do would either be the safest thing or the stupidest thing. One of those two. That's the only options you get with me. is either the safest thing or the stupidest thing. But God had bigger plans than that. And I was going to show you this picture because I remember making a vow. I remember actually, I mean, the only thing I could do, and I don't know if Judy ever knew that I did this, but I walked around that church and I prayed um, every day for like three months. I'd sit down in the front of the in the front of the pew chair thingies, whatever those things are called, and I'd pray that God would do something with this building and. I'd go up into my office and say, well, I don't want to study because that's dumb, so I'm going to pray. And then I'd pray that God would use that building to some degree or move our people or whatever, or come help our people come alive or whatever. And then I'd walk around and I'd pray and pray down in the kitchen and be like, Lord, it stinks down here. And, um, but it actually, it's a beautiful kitchen. And, uh, and I'd just walk around the building and pray. And I remember over and over going, you know what, whatever it takes to build a people who will lay down their lives to listen to Jesus... You know, Lord, whatever it takes to show people that as they grow their heart for the globe, they will see Jesus clearer. You know, Jesus, I will do whatever it takes to do to go wherever He commands, wherever You command me to go, so that I can hear You and we can hear You and see You. You know what, Lord, I will do whatever it takes to help to help this people serve in the way that God has built them. Over and over and over again, made these teeny little vows. And just like that day that I got married, I thought, man, this is an emotional thing, right? And two days later, after God actually started answering those prayers, I'm like, whoa, I don't know if this was the right idea, God. I take all that back, right? But God did amazing things. God does amazing things. 
as we vow to follow Him and to seek after His heart. Not as we vow to take on a curse and an oath to obligate ourselves to take care of the house. You see the difference? So I'm just going to ask you this. Have you vowed anything to the Lord recently? Have you vowed anything to the Lord recently? If so, how's that going? And if not, why not? Have you come to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I don't want to obligate myself to You, but I just ask that no matter where I need to go, no matter what I need to do, no matter how far I need to move, no matter what I need to walk away from, no matter what I need to sell, no matter what I need to do, no matter where I need to go, no matter what, Lord, I want to follow You so I can see You, I can hear You, and I can be with You. Have you ever made that vow? I don't have a picture of this, but I made that vow um, somewhere in between the winter picture and the green picture and ended up here. I tell you, God honors vows not to obligate yourself. Because He will leave you to try to run headlong into that. Because His whole goal is to open your eyes and open your ears to see that you need Him more than you ever think or ever imagine. Have you made a vow to the Lord God? Do not make them lightly. Do not make them lightly. But I will tell you this. If you vow to give your life to the Lord and just respond to what He's going to call you into, He will begin to call you into things. And so I'm going to pray that you wrestle with God that way. That you wrestle with the eternal Jesus Christ. You, you, may, you may have never even made a vow to God to say, Hey, God, I will follow Your Son. I, I, need, your sa- I need Your Son as a Savior. I need Him. I need Him because I can't do this on my own. That's a vow. I don't know if you've ever made that before either. So I'm going to pray that God refresh in you the vows you've made in old, that God awaken inside of you something where you want to give your life to Him, or that God change your trajectory and your walk, maybe if you're walking away from Him. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, remember that this is a time to be able to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. Lord God, we come before You, and Lord, I thank You for the fact that Um, No matter how much I screw up my vows, no matter how much I screw these things up, Lord, the whole point is not keeping them and obeying them and obligating myself to them, but the whole point is You. Lord, I promised to love my wife 18 years ago because that's how I see You. I promised to love my children and sacrifice for them and sacrifice um, everything for them, Lord, because that's how You show me Yourself. And I vowed in this church again and again to continue to walk steadfastly regardless of feelings, regardless of direction, regardless of cost, regardless of anything because this is how we see you clearly. And so Lord, I pray today that my friends would be confronted with this fact of like maybe we are just not committing ourselves, vowing, asking, running, Stepping forward, walking in faith, whatever it is, Lord, maybe we're just not there. So I pray that you'd renew hearts. I can't do that. Holy Spirit, you need to do that. 
And Lord, I pray that where there's legalism, you would battle that back. And where there's people who are being burned by the pressure of of having obligated themselves to try to follow you, Lord, that you would battle that back and help people to know this isn't an obligation. This is a beautiful relationship. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to come alive as we stand in your presence. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.